We love the public reading of Scripture here because we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Speaking of Scripture today, um, I want to teach you a new word, all right? Maybe it's a new word. Maybe you've heard this word before. It's kind of a fun word to say. That is the word perspicuity. You want to say that with me? Perspicuity. It is sounds funny. I kind of like saying that word there. And it sounds like an unclear word, which if you know the meaning of the word, then you realize how interesting that that word, that sounds kind of unclear, the meaning of that word. You know what the meaning of the word is? Perspicuity? Clarity. It means clear, even though it sounds funny. And when we talk in theology, theology is the study of God and all things related to God. And when we talk about theology and that study, kids, we talk about um, theology is like just knowing about God. Well, we talk about sometimes the perspicuity of Scripture. And when I say the perspicuity of Scripture, that means there is a clarity about Scripture. That's a clarity that even a small child can read and understand God's Word. It's not like only the, the priest, the person with the high degree, is the only person who can read Scripture for themselves. That's why we encourage you to read the Bible for yourself. Does that mean that everything in the Bible you're going to understand and it's, everything is always perfectly clear? No, that is not what that means. There's always going to be things that we don't fully understand in Scripture. There's always going to be things that are, you know, doesn't really make sense to us. And we don't have absolute clarity about every little detail of Scripture. However, everything, all the important things that you need to know about God and all the things that you need to know about salvation, you can understand from Scripture. Jesus said some things to his listeners that they didn't understand at first. And maybe there are some things that when you read, you don't understand or you don't really get. But honestly, if we're honest, uh, we have to admit that's not so much that we don't always understand what Jesus is saying. It's that we do understand, but we don't want to listen and obey. Right? It's not that we don't get it. It's that believing what Jesus says means obeying Jesus. And that's the really hard part. That's the really hard part. And in John chapter 10, Jesus has been teaching using a figure of speech. And do you know how I know that he's using a figure of speech? Look in verse 6 of John chapter 10. It says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them. <laughs> there you go. That's perspicuity of Scripture. He says, John, the author, says, Jesus is speaking in a figure of speech. And then Jesus goes on to use a figure of speech. And in that figure of speech, he talks about a sheep pen and that he is the door to the pen, that he is the good shepherd, it says in verse 11, that he has sheep that are not a part of the Jewish flock and that he has sheep that are outside, other sheep that are not a part of that fold and that his mission in this world given him by God the Father is to lay down his life, life for the sheep and then to take it up again, as it says in verses 17 and 18, and that he calls his sheep by name all over the world through his, the voice of his disciples, and that they follow him, and that they, in the end there will be one flock of all people from all around the world that will enjoy the Lord forever around his throne. And that we can have security and safety when we follow the good shepherd. And so knowing that background of God's use of the, of the shepherd metaphor, they knew it really well in their history, in their culture, in their society, it wasn't hard for them to have clarity about what Jesus was saying. I mean, a lot of us here aren't shepherds, but we get what he's saying, right? 
We understand what he's saying when he says, I'm the good shepherd or I'm the gate. And we don't have that kind of background in our modern Western society, but a lot of us understand that. Well, they got it too. And in verse 19 it's of chapter 10, it says that there was division among the people because some people said he had a demon, some people said that he was crazy. And if I was in the crowd that day, I think I would have ended up in the latter group of people. I would have thought this guy is kind of crazy. How could someone claim to lay down their own life at their own choosing, but also take it up again? You know, How could somebody say, I'm going to lay down my life, I'm going to take it up again? That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Well, go to verse 22. So how much time has passed between that figure of speech and what verse 22 begins right here? We don't really know. And Jesus is in the kind of the same location. He's in that Temple Mount area. He's speaking now. It's wintertime, though, and he's in the colonnade of Solomon or Solomon's porch. It's that location that has, has actually walls kind of built around it, so it was a warmer spot in the wintertime. And that was the place, actually, where the first Christians gathered. They gathered on Solomon's porch, and that was where they kind of met in the temple area. And that's where Jesus is. And, in, and you know, John chapter 7 through John chapter 10 it's what's known as the festival cycle. So John is talking about how Jesus was in Jerusalem for all these different feasts. And it starts in John chapter 7 that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And now in verse 22 it says, at that time the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, which was two months after the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's when this takes place, during this feast known as the Feast of Dedication. Okay, hold on a second. I, um, I need to explain something that's here. If you remember, like I said, John chapter 7 through John chapter 10, there's the festival cycle where he's talking about Jesus being in the city for these different feasts. Well, there are three different feasts or festivals that the Jewish people celebrated. The first one of the year was Passover. You know what Passover is. It's when they spread, they remembered how they got out of slavery by spreading the blood of the lamb over their door and then the angel of death passed over all of the, the households that had the blood of the lamb covering them. Well, they celebrated that release from freedom or from slavery with the feast of the Passover. Then, 40 days later, was the feast of Pentecost. And that's where they celebrated the first of the wheat being brought in, the first of the harvest being brought in. And then the third was the feast of the tabernacles, like I talked about. The feast of tents or booths where they celebrated wandering around in the wilderness for 40 days being led by light and having the water come from the rock. So those are the imagery. So you have those three feasts, right? You have the Sabbath, you have, or not the Sabbath, you have the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and you have the Tabernacles. So look at verse 22 again. What does it say? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place. What is the Feast of Dedication? Where did that come from? Have you ever read that and say, wait a second, I've read the Old Testament, there's no Feast of Dedication. It's not in the Old Testament. So if, have you ever thought about that? You're thinking about it now, aren't you? <laughs> like if I said, don't think about an elephant, you start thinking about an elephant. Well, how, this is the Feast of Dedication. Where did it come from? What is the celebration? If you don't already know, let me give you a hint. It's probably the most recognized Jewish holiday that we would understand, that we know about. I'll give you another hint. During this celebration, it lasts eight days, and Jewish people light eight candles over the eight days. It's Hanukkah. That's right. We know it today as Hanukkah. Where did this come from if it's not in the Old Testament? Why is Jesus celebrating this festival called the Feast of Dedication right there in verse 22 and that they still celebrate today 
when it's not in the Old Testament? Where does it come from? And let me tell you, because I think this is super interesting and it gives us a lot of background to this passage of Scripture and what Jesus is saying and when he's saying it and where he's saying it. So between the Old and the New Testament, what we call the intertestamental period, there's 400 years. 400 years. And during this time of history, Alexander the Great, he rose to power, conquered a lot of the known world from Egypt, Assyria, all of Judea, and he brought about wherever he conquered the Greek language, the Greek customs. After he died, his kingdom was split into four different the generals took each took a section, and a man that covered the area of Judea rose to power named Antiochus IV. And he took for himself a name, Antiochus, not the fourth, but Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, and the word Epiphanes means God manifest. So he said, I am God manifest. And the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel, he had this vision that an abomination of desolation would come to the temple. And that was partially fulfilled in 167 B.C. when Antiochus took his army into Jerusalem and stormed the temple. And the place where the Jewish people did their sacrifices in the temple area, he, he completely desecrated it to the, the, the worst extent that you can even imagine. He killed a pig on the altar. He took apart all of the things of God that were in there. He actually like um, forced the Jewish people to eat pork, which they didn't eat. And then he actually set up an idol of Zeus right there in the middle. I mean, the worst you could do, it was, it was complete and utter like horribleness in 167 B.C. Well, during this time, of course, the Jewish response, they, uh, they took up arms and they tried to fight back. And a lot of people were unsuccessful. But after three years, there was a Jewish rebel by the name of Judas Maccabees. His first name was Judas. His last name became Maccabees because the word Maccabees means the hammer. So I want to meet this guy, right? His nickname was the hammer. So Judas the hammer, Judas Maccabees, he instituted guerrilla warfare. He got a bunch of people together and um, Antiochus thought he could just wipe them out. He couldn't because the hammer was the hammer. And what he did was he retook the temple. He reconsecrated that to God. And this happened on the 25th day of the Hebrew month that corresponds to our month of December. And they celebrated for eight days by lighting candles all throughout the area. So that took place in 167. It was a rededication. So it says the Feast of Dedication. In reality, it was kind of like you could call it the Feast of Rededication of the Temple. Saying like, we retook the Temple. So this Feast of Dedication or Rededication... This was like the temple was restored to its rightful place. The temple was where the people went to meet with God. This was the place where God had set up. This was the place where the people met with God. And imagine that, that a man named, uh, a man calling himself God Manifest, Antiochus Epiphanes, he tried to ruin this. And so with that in mind, you can see why some of the people were confused about Jesus. Because how does John begin his, his testimony about Jesus in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. And God made Himself manifest among us. He came and dwelt among us. So in their cultural minds, less than 150, 170 years ago, a man named God manifest destroyed the temple, right? And here's a man named Jesus who, who is claiming to be God manifest. Sounds kind of familiar there, doesn't it? So some of the people, though, they were helpful because they said, hey, we're not being overrun you know, by um, 
by a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes anymore, but instead we're kind of being dominated by the Romans. So maybe we could have somebody, that a savior that would free us from this Roman occupation. Now things aren't as bad as before, but hey, we could use another hammer, right? We could use another Judas the hammer to lead an armed revolt. And we know that this did happen. In Acts chapter 5, verse 37, in A.D. year 6, there was a man named Judas the Galilean, and he led a tax revolt, and he was killed. So some people were thinking, hey, maybe Jesus the Galilean can be the Messiah that Judas the Galilean had failed 25 years earlier. So some people are thinking that. Maybe Jesus the Galilean, he's the second hammer, right? And some people are thinking, oh, maybe he's like Antiochus, God manifest. So people were confused, and they're still thinking about this idea of the shepherd and the sheep story. When they approach Jesus on that cold, wintry day, and they gather around him, they surround him. Uh, the two uh, of the four other times where that is where it says they encircle him is like a military. So I can kind of picture them like bullies on a playground where they all gather around him and they're like, hey, 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 you tell us. You tell us who you are. I think they're being very confrontational and aggressive here with their questioning, saying, I don't, I personally, I don't think they're saying, like, oh, explain to us in greater detail. I think they're saying, you tell us once and for all, who are you? Come on, spit it out. But Jesus. He wasn't trying to avoid the confrontation. He, he was just being very careful when he wanted to use the word Messiah. He wanted his definition, not what they thought their definition of Messiah was. So a lot of people had an idea of what a Savior was going to look like to their people. But he was very clear. You remember with the woman at the well? He was very clear. Privately with his disciples, he was very clear. But he, he resisted what their definition was going to be. He didn't want them to try to make him their image of a Messiah played onto him. Because the popular view of the time was that Messiah would be a warrior who would lead a rebellion against the Romans. But Jesus' role of the Messiah was not like a mighty warrior like Judas Maccabees. He was the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus had said that he was the one who was going to come and suffer and die. An image that they didn't really have in their mindset. And so Jesus was very guarded about the title of Messiah, especially as the cross drew nearer and nearer. You see, we can't be people who fashion Jesus in our own image because he's not always who we want him to be. Instead, we need to understand who Jesus says, who he really is. And we have to realize that the way he defines himself has implications for our life because as Jesus followers, we need to recognize that Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so we are not followers of Jesus who think that we need to take things by force and you know, make people try to become a Christian. But instead, we realize that we are called to reach hearts and minds for the Lord. We are called to, to live lives of sacrifice and love for others, just like Jesus did. You know, um, we have to realize that there is this key to being a follower of Jesus, that, and it actually he ends this in verse 42, is that we need to believe who Jesus is. So when asked this question, Jesus gives the answer in verses 25 to 30. And he says in verse 25 here, I, I told you, I told you, and you didn't believe me. How had he told them? He said, by my works, by my miracles, which plainly showed that 
he had miraculous power, that he was God in the flesh. But Jesus says, you don't understand because you're not my sheep, so you're not, you're not getting it. So those who are part of Jesus' flock can have great comfort and security. Look at verse 28, the three great gifts that he gives us. Number one is eternal life. We have the security of knowing that death in this life is not eternal death. We have eternal life in him because our life is hidden in Christ when we have repented and put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. When we have new life in Christ, we have eternal life. Secondly, it says we will never perish. So we will not face eternal death. We can have eternal life. Yes, these earthly tents will waste away, but our life forever can be secure in Jesus Christ. And our spirits can be renewed day by day. And thirdly, he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And that is an image of like grabbing quickly, of taking, of stealing away. He says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. To paraphrase Galatians 4.9, knowing God is good, but being known by God or being known by Jesus is better still. And that's what it's really all about. So does this negate human responsibility? Absolutely not. The Bible never pits the two against one another. Each one of us is a sinner by birth, but we're also sinners by choice as well. Each one of us has gone our own way, thinking our own way is best, and we have rebelled against God, our Creator. But Jesus says that His sheep hear His voice and His sheep follow Him, as He says in verse 27. And no one can snatch us out of His hand. If it were, if it were left up to us, then yes, we would fall away. But Jesus has promised that He's going to hold His sheep secure. You know, one of the best pictures, there's a lot of good images of this, but R.C. Sproul has a good one that he, he's said before. Imagine this picture in your mind of a father walking with his three-year-old beside a dangerous railroad track. And there are two different ways that the father can protect the son. He can tell the little boy, now listen, son, hold tightly to my hand because if you let go, and you could fall on the tracks and be killed. Or the father can say, son, give me your hand. And he takes the boy's hand and holds on to him. And in that way, the father holds on to the son rather than the son holding on to the father. And so which is better? It's the father holding on to the son. It's like that line from that song in Christ Alone where he said, it says, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. That's what we are. If we are one of his sheep, we know that we are secure in his hand. And Jesus goes on to explain his identity as the Messiah in relationship to God the Father in verse 30. Look what he says there. He says, I and the Father are one. So in verse 28, Jesus says that no one will snatch them out of my hand. In verse 29, he says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see, he's saying, they're in my hand, they're in the Father's hand, because I and the Father are one. And it's not just that they share a common mission. That's what some people will say who deny the deity of Christ. They will say that Jesus just had the same mindset as the Father. He was at the same mission as the Father. But it's not just one in action with the Father, but he was one in essence with the Father and with the Holy Spirit as well. So we believe in a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The plan of salvation were, is, is the, that, the plan of that trifold God. That, that pl this plan of salvation was planned by the Father, carried out by the Son, and applied, the work of the, the Son's death was applied by the Spirit to God's people. And we are eternally secure because Jesus is 
the Messiah. Not the Savior that we might think we want, but the Savior that we really need. That we truly need indeed. So next, look at their response in verse 31 with me. It says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Again. (laughs) This is not the first time this happened. And Jesus is, it's hilarious to me how he stops them in their tracks in verse 32. Hey, 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 hold on a second. I've done a lot of good things. Which one of the good things are you going to stone me for? And I love this. And John said that Jesus, uh, you remember John uh, has recorded at the end of the book with his purpose statement in John chapter 30, he says, or he says, um, John chapter 20, I should say, he says that uh, Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in this, this book. But I have recorded these things that you may believe that Jesus is his son, and by believing you may have life in his name. So he did a bunch of other things. So many other things that not all the books in the world probably contain all that Jesus has done. It's just scratching the surface here, but you remember in chapter 2, he turned water into wine. In chapter 4, he healed the son of a royal official. In chapter 5, we read that Jesus healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. In chapter 6, he fed 5,000 people with a small boy's lunch and and their families. Then he walked on water. Chapter 9, he healed a man born blind since birth. And that's just a little bit of what we read that Jesus has already done. He's helped a lot of people. He's done a lot of miracles. So he's kind of saying, okay, which one of those, you know, I guess bad things, which one of those things that I did deserve this mob attacks that you want to kill me for? And it stops them, right? They say, we're not going to stone you for all those good things, <laughs> they had to admit, right? Not for any of those things. But because you, being a man, you make yourself God. So when Jesus said that he and the Father were one, what did they hear? You are claiming to be God. Jesus clearly, it's not something that was made up by people a couple hundred years later, Jesus was claiming to be God. They knew it so clearly they were going to kill him for it. They understood it. Jesus was being very crystal clear. He is God. So their response is understandable. That's blasphemy. That's execution time. A man claiming to be God. So yeah, Jesus was making that claim as the Son of God. And so they're holding stones, right? They're getting ready to hurl them at Jesus. And what does he do? I love how he... He, missed, he um, diffused the situation there. First, he stopped them in their tracks with this misdirect about, their, about good deeds. And then he outmaneuvers them by quoting the scripture. And so now, they're left with, you know, a stone in one hand and scratching their head with the other hand. They're kind of like, ah, oh, oh, wait a second, okay? Because all of a sudden, Jesus, now he outmaneuvers them and he quotes, in the footnote here, it says it's Psalms 82.6. So, he quotes Psalms 82, which is a psalm about human judges. Specifically, it's about how they were not good. They were showing partiality to the wicked. And in this psalm, talking about judges, the psalmist uses a small g, letter God, to describe those people in reference to those judges. They were kind of like a, a small g God because they were supposed to be administering justice. And that's a job that only God, big G, does, right? So he says, you are like gods when you're doing this and you're being wicked, is what he says. So it's a little confusing here, but basically Jesus is saying that, hey, Scripture can't be broken, right? Scripture is always right, right? Right? So he says it was okay then for those mere mortals to be called small g gods and no one stoned them for it. 
how much more, how much better, how much more right it is for me, I am the Son of God, I am consecrated or set apart by God the Father to be called the Son of God. So he's saying how, you know, he quoted from them, quoted scripture for them to say like, it makes more sense because I have been set apart. I have been consecrated by God the Father for this purpose. Now remember, where is he saying these things, right? He's saying these things in the temple area during a festival that's celebrating the rededication or the reconsecration of God's temple. So isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing what he does right there? How he, like basically, like I said, Verse 22, you think that's just something that you could just read by and not make any sense. But Jesus is saying the temple is where people went to meet with God. You're celebrating this rededication right now. I am the new temple. This is where you go to meet with God. You come to me that I am the one sent by God in heaven. It's not your way of salvation. Salvation is now only through me. And they understood it. They really got it that Jesus is the place. If you want to know God, look to Jesus. Do you want to meet God? You go through Jesus. And that's the final invitation here in verse 37. It's like a take it or leave it statement. It's the bottom line statement for Jesus. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. Okay? Simple as that. If I'm not doing the works, don't believe me. It's like the question that we can ask when sharing the gospel with someone who acknowledges, okay, Jesus is more than just a good teacher. Then we should say, did he rise from the grave? Yes or no? Figure it out. Did he rise from the grave? Just do your study. Investigate that. If you want to investigate it, that makes all the difference in the world. Like uh, the pastor Tim Keller says, like, if he didn't rise from the grave, okay, throw everything away he said. Throw it all away. Live however you want. But if he rose from the grave, you got to listen to what he said. Because that changes everything. And then Jesus says, okay, this is before his death and resurrection, he says, did I do the works? If I didn't do the works, don't believe me. Walk away. Do whatever you want to do. Live your life how you want to live your life. But if I did do it, then you got to come face to face with that. you got to acknowledge it's true. He says, if I'm not believing, don't believe. If I'm not doing the works, don't believe me. But verse 18, 38, if I do them, he says, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That's it. Don't believe my what I say? Look at the works. Believe what your eyes are know to be true. And so, what are you going to do with that? And this strikes me as very uh, merciful on Jesus' part. Because he's face to face with people who are so angry at them that they're ready to throw stones at him. And he starts showing love and care and concern to them. And telling them what they need to do to be saved. And not returning anger for anger or malice for malice or evil for evil. And he also gives them an opportunity. It's like how far can you go down the road and not come to Christ? You can't go too far. Because the offer for salvation is right here before you. And we know what the Jews did according to verse 39. They wanted to, many of them, you know, they wanted to arrest Jesus. But he slipped away. He slipped away. And you know, this could have been the end of the story for John. He could have just like cut off the story about this situation right here and Jesus left. Period, right? And at the conclusion of our passage, Jesus goes away. It says, 
because the story continues in verse 30 or 40. He goes away across the River Jordan back to where? Back to the beginning. He goes back to the beginning to where the ministry first began, where John the Baptist was doing his ministry. And it's where it's here where we see the key to faith. We were reminded again about John's ministry. Just so you know, John is not alive at this point, okay? John is, he, he's been beheaded. He's no longer with us. So the people there, they remember, Jesus goes back there, but not to see John. But the people that are there, they remember John, and they remember John's ministry. His ministry was not about flashiness. John's ministry did not have any signs or miracles. John's ministry was a humble ministry, and it was a ministry that pointed to Jesus. His spotlight was always on Jesus. And I pray that we would have the same mindset of John the Baptist. Because it says here, everything that John said about this man was true. And it was through John's ministry that many people were introduced to Jesus. And even after he was long gone, his ministry was still bearing fruit because people remembered the words he spoke about Jesus. And they remembered his humble, loving mindset. And that continued. And that's where Jesus went back. I pray this morning that we would have the same heart as John did. And I want to end with those words that we are reminded about the key to faith. What we see here um, is believing about who Jesus is. And listen to what John had said in John chapter 3. He said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And here at the end of John chapter 10, we see that coming to fruition is that the life and ministry of John that his life did decrease and Jesus did increase. And I pray that that's our prayer as well. May he increase in our life and may we decrease. And may that be true today of us as we follow Jesus our Savior, the Son of God.